The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold, Behold. the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative Contagion, the word virus. Rock versus the Lizard People. Punk Rock versus the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock versus the Lizard People. Mod Log 2. The Girl. I was late. I could hear the bell ringing over my skateboard's tail, grinding into the sidewalk as I dragged to an abrupt stop. Damn it. I hissed through my teeth, jogging into the glass double doors and creeping down the already empty main corridor of Wesley High. I made every effort to sneak mouse-like toward my locker, open it and place my skateboard inside as if I risked waking some flesh-eating giant. The irony, of course, was that no matter how quietly I crept about, I still had to barge into first period late. No avoiding that one now. Looping the combination lock through the latch, I felt a presence looming over me. I turned to find none other than Mr. Clanton himself, principal of Wesley High, within an inch of my freaking face. I lunged backward reflexively, dropping my bag and books everywhere. Mr. Clanton stood there, statuesque impervious to my shock. Mr. Thomas, he purred like some movie villain having finally cornered his protagonist. Running late, are we? Woke up sick, I lied. But I decided school was too important to miss, sir, so I finished barfing, got cleaned up, and booked it to first period. Newfound appreciation for your education then, Mr. Thomas. Clanton's nose drifted upward as he spoke, observing me like a supine insect. More appreciative every day, sir, I nodded, turning away. 
Mr. Clanton grabbed my shoulder, rotating me slowly to face him again. If I asked you, right now, to draw a suspect sketch that I described as failed drill sergeant turned high school principal, you'd draw Mr. Clanton, perpetually misted by sweat, thin lips drawn over small yellow teeth, jutting chin, black-rimmed glasses and a buzz cut so precise it must have been issued with a clenched butthole. Tall, lanky, with instances of muscle-turned-flab here and there, Mr. Clanton's short-sleeved button-up never escaped the confines of his high-watered slacks. He hated the things many authority figures hate, people below or unlike himself, ideas new or alien to his way of thinking, and teenagers. He sighed, apparently not done talking. So when I saw you and your gang of delinquents funneling out of Fuller's Cafe this morning, you had just pulled your sickly head out of a toilet long enough to grab breakfast? Jeez, Mr. Clanton, I stammered, running a hand through my hair. I was okay then, yeah, I mean, sure, but something didn't agree with me, you know? I'm sure if I asked those of your misfit gang who did make it to class on time, they'd confirm observable signs of your impending illness. Oh, sure, Mr. Clanton, they'd say as much. Why do you drag those students down, Thomas? Clinton sighed, finally releasing my shoulder. Mr. Stevens, Mr. Patchett, did it ever occur to you they might prefer to do something with their lives besides play video games and skateboard? Except for Connor, most of my friends did just fine in school. They kept their heads down, their noses clean, and just did their work as to avoid the greater headache that typically preceded rebellion. Mr. Clanton cleared his throat, apparently expecting some answer to his dumbass question, but I said nothing. Just looked down and stared at my shoes like a total chump. And Miss Berkeley, Miss Cates, he tisked. Not exactly your class of people, Mr. Thomas. His thin, froggy lips drew up in a smirk. It's true that most folks had no idea why Becky or Emma spent so much time with us, with me in particular. I'd often heard of certain teachers pleading with either of them to avoid me, lest my unsavory no-goodness tainted them. Becky and Emma almost never shared those stories with me, presumably concerned for my feelings and capable of seeing through my lame attempts at emotional invincibility. Get out of my sight, Clinton growled, and to annoy him just a little, I moved very slowly down the hall, as if unexcited by his effort to flatten my spirit. I even hummed quietly, which was probably pushing it.
Standing outside of first period algebra, I had now come to the final moments of my ability to blissfully ignore the knowledge that, in all likelihood, Emma would be among the crowd of students to suddenly turn and follow my tardy entrance. Emma Cates. M's. The living embodiment of Still Waters Run Deep. A petite little brunette, her long, flowing hair usually drawn up over one shoulder, Emma was thin and delicate-looking, fair-skinned, elegant nose, soft pink lips, big blue eyes with impossibly long lashes. A unique beauty, utterly unlike the bland, bombshell cheerleaders or the glasses-wearing, pretty-in-disguise nerd girls. She was like a would-be ballerina and teen-European model hybrid. Like Becky, Emma was subject to an endless parade of crushes and admirers who could never quite figure her out and eventually threw their hands up in frustration. Emma was quiet until you got to know her. Then she was outgoing, fun-loving, thoughtful, clever, and unintentionally hilarious. She was also one of us. As long as our group had been around, our outsiders, our goonies, our shutter breakfast club, Emma had always been a part of it. And yeah, I'd been madly in love with her the whole time. So what? You'd be surprised the lengths you can go to in order to suppress your affection for one of your closest friends. For the longest time, no one had any clue I was secretly infatuated with Emma. An engine that kept the vehicle of our gang in motion was the fact that we were strangely mismatched and yet dealt with one another as a family. There had been the makings of a juvenile love triangle once or twice, but we recovered quickly. Emma and Becky knew and related to us as guys that cared for them without the hassle of wanting to be their boyfriends. So fessing up to my deep, dark secret was absolutely out of the question. Besides, I'd only been hiding it for a year. I was sure it'd go away any moment now. I'd often gone through mental exercises during particularly intense bouts of admiration. Picture Emma belching, picture Emma barfing, picture Emma on the toilet, gross, picture my grandma on the toilet, worse. But all I did was pave the way to escape into my imagination with Emma. Picture Emma laughing, picture Emma dancing, picture Emma in a bikini. So on that morning in November, standing outside of first period, I fired up some stock unappealing Emma routines to mute my excitement over her return to Portland after a couple of weeks visiting family in California, balanced, of course, with a friendly welcome home. Emma with rotten teeth, Emma screaming at a little old lady, Emma punching a kitten, Emma rising from the foamy waters of the Oregon coast, sun-dappled, goose-skinned, in a two-piece, swinging her wet hair. Damn it. I took a deep breath, shook the image from my mind by physically shaking my head, and opened the door. There came the immediately drawn attention, the predictably sarcastic welcome, and in the back of the classroom, next to the only empty desk, Emma Cates. Somehow, the two weeks away had made her more gorgeous, and I thought, what sorcery is this? But I managed to muster my coolest, most casual walk, and I sat down in the empty desk beside her, ignoring the tracking gaze of every lame brain in Algebra 2, and gave Emma a devil-may-care smirk and nod of recognition, which I'm fairly certain was actually a creepy, lurching grin. Emma smiled back, silently mouthing a hello with a look of excitement, simply happy to be reunited with a friend.
You guys didn't have too much fun without me, did you? Emma asked, making an irresistible pouty face after the bell had rung and students began to flee algebra in a scramble. Duh, I scoffed. We've exhausted the possibilities of fun. There's none left for you, I'm afraid. Shut up, she smiled, giving me a feeble punch in the arm. Are we doing something tonight? We? I asked after a momentary pause, blood probably rushing to my face. Yeah, she said with a confused look. Everyone, are we hanging out? Oh, right, yeah, we totally should. I'll tell everyone. We'll come over tonight. Right on, I nodded, presumably like an idiot. See you then. Outside the classroom, I sighed at my open locker, looking down at my skateboard and wanting more than anything to get the hell out of Wesley High. I peered down the crowded hallway and groaned at the sight of Flynn Hardy and Bradley Press as they came sauntering over like a couple of make-believe fashion models. Flynn and Bradley were two of Wesley High's only examples of what it meant to be NARS famous. With a few hundred thousand NARS connections between the two of them, these two deluded assholes were more convinced of their notoriety than any human had ever been in the history of time. They walked around Wesley High with their noses in the air, radiating their self-approval and dressed like a couple of preppy pretty boys who had agonized over just the right button-up to tuck into their tight jeans. The lighting wasn't right, Flynn was saying as he opened the locker just a few down from mine. It made my hair look all wrong. Oh, God, Bradley nodded. I know exactly what you mean. I tried to get the perfect Narzi for an hour before I just gave up altogether. It's like, I believe in the cause, Flynn said, forced look of sincerity on his childlike face. But I just can't post content that's out of sync with my brand, you know? Totally, bro, Bradley nodded, eyes closed. It's like, I appreciate that they want to, like, stop AIDS and all. I really do. But if I start posting something I don't believe in, I'm not being true to myself, man. Oh, God. I groaned, turning to them. You narcons are killing me. Just give me a minute to get out of earshot so I don't have to hear another second of your narcissistic blathering. Oh, I'm sorry, Flynn grunted sarcastically, crossing his long arms. The guy was tall and thin and painstakingly groomed. Did we arouse your jealousy? Listen to yourselves, I said. You're actually bragging about taking Narzis, as if the very concept isn't shameful. Are you not embarrassed to confess your love for taking pictures of yourself? We were both personally invited to an AIDS Action Committee benefit last night. Our NARS profiles are doing so much good in the world that AAC came to us to promote the cause. Yeah, yeah, I sighed, pinching the bridge of my nose as if they were giving me a migraine. I heard all about it. You spent the evening taking pictures of yourselves, and you're not going to say anything about AIDS relief, after all, because your hair didn't look quite right. We're trying to change the world, Bradley sneered, leaning toward me. What good are you doing? Helping people turn Atari games into cassette players? FM radios. Either way, Flynn laughed, cinching up his backpack. I'm sure the five people that see your NARS profile appreciate it. Sounds like you're one of them, I said. Thanks for reading. Eat shit, loser. Bradley snarled before the two of them whirled around and strolled proudly out of sight. 
Sheesh, I whispered to myself, turning around. Then the Washington Rednecks got me. Though Washington State is a mere 20-minute drive over a river, the class of hillbilly they grow there feels as if it belongs on another planet. Garbed in baggy, stonewashed jeans and thermal underwear draped in unbuttoned flannel, these mulleted freakazoids were more fearful of anything new or unknown than even Mr. Clanton. Their only means of confronting the horrifying outside world was to fan their mullets out like defensive peacocks, then set to work hurling insults or fists, whichever was more appropriate for the situation at hand. Many had migrated to Oregon, and we now had several at Wesley High. There I was at my locker when two archetypal goons suddenly flanked me. Hey, boy, one of them said between loud smacks of gum. You know Rebecca Berkeley, don't you? I had a whole database of sarcastic responses to this question, but today I just wanted to make it to seventh period and get the hell out of here, so I ignored them. This one here? The other goon snorted in unbelief. He knows that redhead babe with the rack? You her little faggot friend or something, boy? I sighed, blinking slowly. Hangs around with Emma Cates, too. The first redneck chuckled, giving me a shove. Ain't that right? Well, I'll be damned, his crony said in mock wonder. Now that little gal is a serious piece of ass. Hey, boy, the first one went on. How you get in with those girls anyway? You paint your nails together? Braid each other's hair? I looked around the busy hallway. I could have just walked away. Hey, the other one shouted. You deaf faggot? You need to tell both those bitches to give us a call if they want... Before he could finish... I had wound up and hit him in the face. I could hear Connor's words in my mind. Those who take up the sword will die by the sword. And before the Connor of my imagination could gloat, I was on the ground and they were wailing on me. I crossed my forearms in front of my face like a shield and they both set to work clumsily jabbing me in the ribs, barking out threats, trying to get a shot at my face. On my back, peering through my makeshift face guard, I could see my skateboard teetering upright in my open locker. I drew up a knee, slammed it into the lockers, and the skateboard came down on redneck number one's skull with a sharp cracking sound. The Neanderthal leaped up, grappling at his burning brain case, a string of indecipherable obscenities escaping from his clenched teeth like air from the pinched spout of a balloon. The sidekick was temporarily distracted from his hard work pummeling me. What the hell? the baffled dolt said. In one admittedly awesome moment, I managed to jump to my feet, shovel the toe of my Chuck Taylor high top beneath my skateboard, flipping it on its wheels with a swift kick. In another second, I was on the board, escape stance activated. I'll leave you two lovebirds to it then, I said as I took off down the hall, the goons giving immediate chase. I went on zooming down the polished concrete floor of the hall, weaving frantically through a maze of unsuspecting high school students, most of them yelling at me or jumping out of the way, spilling paper and textbooks in the process. I was almost to the exit, the sea of teenagers parting before me when a final obstacle suddenly appeared to block my escape. Mr. Clanton. I dragged the tail, grinding to a stop, and whirled around to see behind me. There was the wake of wreckage I'd left, and in the middle, the charging rednecks. I looked ahead, and there was Clanton, all waxy and sweaty under his buzz cut. At this point, anxiety was at an all-time high. Then it hit me brain drain.
I drew my knee up to my chest and pushed forward as hard as I could, catapulting myself down the now-parted sea of students, looking on as if I were a gladiator in the Thunderdome. I could see flashes of gaping, awe-induced expressions as I passed, Mr. Clanton's shape growing before my very eyes as I closed in on him, his brow furrowing as if in slow motion. There comes a moment in any crucial fight-or-flight scenario when one must choose whether to accept or deny the reality your brain is rapidly pumping to your every extremity. The panic, the intellectual chaos, the anxiety that cripples. Those who accept the brain's message must then gather the means to govern the mind fireworks and face the moment at hand. Or, you can employ the brain drain. Imagine the mind's emergency alert being siphoned out of your gray matter until all that remains is placid clarity, instinct, muscle memory. I was now playing chicken with Mr. Clanton, rushing toward him at what felt like 60 miles per hour. The brain drain was working. I felt no panic or apprehension, didn't wonder who'd budge first or if I'd be expelled when this was all said and done. I just kept cruising and didn't flinch. Clinton got down in a goalie stance, apparently bracing himself for impact. I did the same. In the chaos of it all, I hurtled at Clinton without slowing, and just before what I was convinced was going to be impact, Clinton barked, little buttworm, of all things, and then dove out of harm's way. I positioned my shoulder in front of my body and aimed at the exit's push bar. The collision hurt badly, and I nearly flew backward off the board and on to Mr. Clanton, but the focus of my shoulder allowed the door to absorb enough of the impact that it opened, and with another push, I was outside. The brain drain wore off, and three things became immediately apparent. One, that was awesome. Two, how the hell was I going to get out of hot water at school after this? I could always blame the rednecks, mention the fight, try to get some sympathy, say I wasn't in my right mind. Of course, it's not like I had many sympathizers at Wesley High. The last thing that occurred to me was, my mom is going to kill me. To ensure proliferation of the word virus, you can support our efforts via patreon.com slash the word virus. Lure others to infection by sharing the word virus via social media on Twitter at the word virus and Instagram at spread the word virus and at the word virus.com. 